In the early 1960s, a distinct movement began to take root within traditional Protestant churches in which members began to pursue and to practice the gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in passages like 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Ephesians 4 and Romans 12, and throughout the book of Acts, particularly the so-called miraculous gifts like speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, and so forth. This movement became known as the Charismatic Renewal Movement, named after the Greek word for gift, which is charismata. Pentecostals who shared this same enthusiasm for the miraculous gifts had been around since the turn of the 20th century, but they had never really found a place among American Protestants who viewed them with suspicion because of their more extreme beliefs and practices. But the charismatic renewal movement took place within these historic churches as charismatics wed traditionally Protestant beliefs and practice to the pursuit and practice of the miraculous gifts. Eventually, however, tension arose within these churches between the charismatic and the non-charismatic factions, and many charismatics left in order to form their own churches and their own networks. You may have heard of men like Chuck Smith with Calvary Chapel or John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement, or more recently, Bill Johnson and the Bethel Church Network. Today, as the Assemblies of God, which is the world's largest Pentecostal denomination, have become more mainstream evangelical, many, though not all, charismatics have simply merged in with them. Such that in today's common vocabulary, the term charismatic usually refers to an individual or a church that practices and pursues the so-called miraculous gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues or prophecy and healing and the like. Now, there was bound to be tension between the charismatic and the non-charismatic streams of modern evangelicalism. On the one hand, the very nature of the question provokes fiery debate. What does it mean to be charismatic? Are only those who practice the so-called miraculous gifts charismatic? Are non-charismatics who do not possess or practice the miraculous gifts somehow substandard second-tier Christians? Are all Christians baptized in the Spirit or only those who speak in tongues and prophesy? And are those miraculous gifts even available today? Or were they relegated to the apostolic era? While the debate arising from questions such as these have come to the fore in modern evangelical conversation, this tension over the pursuit and the practice of the charismatic gifts is not a new phenomenon. The subject threatened to divide the church at Corinth, where the congregation was overly focused upon the miraculous and was not appreciating the diversity of gifts which the Spirit had bestowed upon the whole church. And Paul responded to the Corinthian chaos with three whole chapters devoted to the instruction and the regulation of the charismatic gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, 
but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul's instruction on the gifts of the Spirit continues for three whole chapters, during which Paul emphasizes the diversity of these gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He emphasizes the preeminence of love in the use of these gifts, 1 Corinthians 13. And then he regulates the practice of the gifts, particularly the practice of prophecy and speaking in tongues within the corporate assembly of the church. That's 1 Corinthians 14. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot that could be said about spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But the main point that I want you to see today from the passage that I just read is that Paul considered the whole church to be a charismatic, that is, a spiritually gifted body in which each member, remember he says that the Spirit has given gifts to each one individually as he wills, to each member possessing different gifts for the common good. In other words, Paul did not distinguish between charismatic and non-charismatic Christians. For Paul, there was no such thing as a non-charismatic Christian. According to Paul, every spirit-indwelt, spirit-gifted believer is a charismatic. Not only those who speak in tongues or prophesy or work miracles. And every true church is a charismatic church. Now, on the other hand, just as in Corinth... We need to recognize that this charismatic renewal movement has tended very often to go to unhealthy extremes, often bringing embarrassment upon the name of Christ and upon the evangelical church. The most recent high-profile example of this was the debacle this last December at Bethel Church in Redding, California, where some of the members of the church publicly predicted the resurrection of a two-year-old girl who had died of an illness, and they held nightly prayer and worship vigils to that end until they finally were forced to stop when it became evident that this girl's resurrection was simply not in God's plan. This whole event made national headlines and occurred because Bethel Church does not heed many of the principles that I'm going to elaborate upon today. Now, stories of such excesses and abuses abound in charismatic circles, and they have called forth virulent responses from cessationist pastors and theologians who believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit were confined to the apostolic age. The most prominent opponent of the charismatic movement is undoubtedly John MacArthur, who for over 50 years now has pastored Grace Community Church in Southern California, which is in many ways ground zero for the charismatic movement. In 1993, MacArthur published a book entitled Charismatic Chaos, 
which was a blistering attack and an exegetical response to the movement. MacArthur then followed this up in 2013 with another cessationist manifesto entitled Strange Fire. So now nearly 60 years on, the debate continues to rage and consensus regarding the charismatic gifts continues to elude the evangelical church. But the question I want to ask us this morning is, the only choice set before us between the charismatic extremes of the faith healers and a a cessationist view which says that the miraculous gifts have totally ceased? Is that the only choice set before us as a church? Must we choose between a theology that denies the continuation of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit on the one hand and charismatic chaos on the other? The theological issues that are involved in this question are far too complex to tackle in one sermon. Maybe someday soon we will study 1 Corinthians together as a church or the book of Acts, and we will then be able to delve into this issue in greater detail. Today, however, it's important that I give you some preliminary thoughts on the matter of the charismatic gifts in order to provide a backdrop against which we may understand today's text in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And I think the best way to do that, the best way to give us a a backdrop, some preliminary knowledge about the relationship between the charismatic gifts and today's church would be to give you five introductory thoughts. So here we go. Five introductory thoughts on the charismatic gifts and today's church. Number one, I do not find the argument convincing, which says that some gifts of the spirit ceased after the apostolic age, while other gifts of the spirit remain. I find no exegetical grounds for separating the so-called miraculous gifts like prophecy, healing, speaking in tongues, etc., from the so-called ordinary gifts like teaching, giving, mercy, and so forth. In fact, I find such a division between the miraculous and the non-miraculous, supernatural and ordinary gifts to be entirely arbitrary. And I find no biblical reason to deny that all the gifts of the Spirit continue throughout this present age. That seems to me to be the best understanding of the biblical text. If we were in the last days at Pentecost, when Peter applied the prophecy of Joel regarding the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, when Peter applied that prophecy to the whole church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, then we are still in the last days today, and the Spirit is still being poured out upon the church. Now, I have read and listened to arguments on both sides of this issue, and I have repeatedly found the argument that all the gifts continue throughout this present age to be more exegetically sound and more biblically faithful to the text. Now, there are good men that I love and respect, John MacArthur among them, who would disagree with me on this. Likewise, there are good men, uh, John Piper, Martin Lloyd-Jones among them, who would agree with me. But most importantly, I'm convinced of the continuation of all of the gifts of the Spirit throughout this present age by the testimony of Scripture itself. Second, 
I reject the whole continuationist, cessationist framework as unbiblical and frankly unhelpful. Now, this is sadly the way that the whole debate seems to take shape today. Either you are a continuationist, one who believes that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit continue into the present age, or you're a cessationist, one who believes that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased in the present age. Technically, I suppose I would have to admit that I am a continuationist, but that doesn't tell the whole truth. Because I don't think that the gifts continue at all times and in all places in exactly the same way. Rather, I would propose a different sort of framework for this discussion. I propose an extraordinary, ordinary framework. I think that the church experiences extraordinary seasons in which the Spirit works in extraordinary ways while at other times the Spirit works through the ordinary means of the ministry of the Word, the regular preaching and teaching of Scripture. For instance, I think the Great Awakening that took place in the 18th century was one of those extraordinary seasons during which the Spirit worked in extraordinary ways. And there have been many such seasons throughout the history of the church. And who knows, but that we may be entering into such a season as a result of the global crisis we're now experiencing. Third, and following logically from the second point, the book of Acts and the church of the apostolic age represent one of those extraordinary seasons in which the Spirit worked in extraordinary ways. And therefore, the book of Acts should not be considered normative for the church in all places and at all times. In other words, if our church, if First Baptist Nixa does not see at present, the gift of miracles or tongues or healing operating at present, that's okay. It is no sign that the Spirit is not among us, that He's not working continually and powerfully in our midst through His other gifts, working preeminently through the ministry of the Word. It simply means that at present, First Baptist Nixa is in one of those ordinary seasons. So don't despise the ordinary ministry of the Word and the Spirit. That's the predominant way in which Christ builds His church throughout this age. But there are extraordinary seasons and extraordinary circumstances in which the Spirit works in those extraordinary ways that we see in the book of Acts. A quick survey of Acts will show that the Spirit performed signs and wonders, in other words, miracles, in order to confirm the word of the gospel, to bring people to saving faith, and to establish the church where the church was not previously established. And that's the purpose, I think, of such miraculous gifts. To show unbelievers that God is really among us. That this is really his word. That we are really his ministers, his people, his church. But we need to remember that the book of Acts describes particular churches in a particular context. 
It's the story of the gospel pushing into the frontiers of the kingdom of darkness. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And establishing a church in every nation and among every people. The book of Acts, in other words, is an account of frontier missions. It is not a manual for the established church. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus function in that capacity. And in the service of this mission of infiltrating the kingdom of darkness, the spirit worked in extraordinary ways. So here's the principle. Extraordinary ministry requires extraordinary gifts. That's why it's not uncommon for us to hear reports of signs and wonders occurring on the mission field where the circumstances are much the same as they were in the book of Acts. The gospel and the church breaking through the defenses of the enemy and infiltrating the kingdom of darkness. But our church, First Baptist Nixa, is not on the frontiers of the mission field. We are a church ministering in a place where the gospel and the church have already taken root and established a stronghold. Therefore, we seem to be in a season of ordinary ministry. And ordinary ministry requires more ordinary gifts. That's why I think it is good and right and biblical for our church to take our cue more from 1 Timothy and Titus than from the book of Acts. You will look in vain for any mention of miracles or tongues or healing in the pastoral epistles. But what you will find in plenty in those epistles are instructions and exhortations about the ordinary ministry of the word in the life of the church. Why? Because those epistles were written to established churches preparing for prolonged ordinary ministry. Do you see how this framework of extraordinary and ordinary is vastly different than just arbitrarily saying that some gifts have ceased for the non-apostolic church while other gifts remain? Fourth, nevertheless, the Apostle Paul envisioned that the church of this present age, every church, our church, would be a charismatic church. That is, Paul envisioned that every church would be a congregation of spirit-indwelt, spirit-filled, spirit-gifted believers who minister to one another and to the world out of the gifts which the Spirit has given. I am zealous that First Baptist Nixa not forfeit the term charismatic to the Pentecostals and the non-denominational churches. They don't own the rights to the term charismatic. I am zealous that First Baptist Nixa would not reserve the word charismatic only for those who speak in tongues or believe in the ongoing gift of healing. Charismatic is a New Testament word that ought to describe the New Testament church. How tragic would it be for us to deny that we are a charismatic church? Because that would be to deny that we possess the charismata, the gifts of the spirit for the work of the ministry. Fifth and finally, 
the spirit dispenses gifts and works in his church as he wills. This is, I think, the most important and most neglected principle in this entire debate. The Pentecostals and the Charismatics have traditionally claimed that speaking in tongues, for instance, is an essential sign for anyone who has been baptized in the Spirit. But Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 12.30 that not all speak in tongues. That not all possess gifts of healing. That not all are prophets. Not all are teachers. The gifts of the Spirit, as we will see in Romans 12, are distributed by the Spirit in accordance with His sovereign will for the good of the church and for the good of the world. And not everyone has the same gift. All Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. That's another place that traditional Pentecostals and Charismatics have gone astray. If you're not baptized in the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. But not all who are baptized in the Spirit possess the same gifts. The overarching principle that ought to rule our pursuit and practice of the spiritual gifts is the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in the distribution of his gifts. Should we pray for the gifts of the Spirit? Yes. We see the Jerusalem church engaged in earnest prayer for the power of the Spirit in signs and wonders. Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And Paul exhorts the Corinthians to pursue the gifts of the Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. So it is good and it is right to pray for and to pursue the gifts of the Spirit. Even those gifts that are associated with what the Bible calls signs and wonders. We ought not be afraid of those things. We ought to long for those things. But in the end, we need to understand that it is the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit who determines the distribution of His gifts to His church. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually just as He wills. So we pray 
for the gifts and the power of the spirit. We pray that God would stretch forth his hand in signs and wonders as he gives us boldness to speak the word of God. We receive humbly and gratefully whatever the sovereign spirit wills to give us. And we recognize both in scripture and in history that the spirit tends to give his extraordinary gifts during extraordinary seasons for extraordinary ministry. And he gives his ordinary gifts during ordinary seasons for ordinary ministry. And preeminent over all of the gifts is the word of God through the power of the spirit, which is able to save those who believe all gifts are subservient to God's word. At first Baptist Nixa, we are and must be a charismatic church in the best and biblical sense of the word. Why? Because that is what makes us different from the world. It is the presence of the spirit working powerfully among us through and in accordance with the apostolic word that differentiates us from every other religious or social organization on earth. There's a lot of organizations. There's a lot of charities. There's a lot of religious groups who are going to be doing a lot of things during this time of crisis. But only the church of Jesus Christ has the spirit and the gifts. Back in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul alludes to this fact when he is giving instructions and restrictions for the practice of the gifts of prophecy and tongues within the corporate gathering, the corporate assembly of the church. And he says something really interesting and really important that I want you to notice. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? If you've ever been in a church service where there's this mass speaking in tongues and it sounds like absolute chaotic nonsense, it is. Paul says, if that's what you're doing in your corporate assembly, it's of no use to anyone. They're going to say, you're out of your minds. It's not the place. It's not the time. It's not the function of speaking in tongues. But, he says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are revealed And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Is that not what we want? Do we not want unbelievers to come into our worship services, to come into our gatherings, our assemblies, to be confronted by the Spirit who is among us and in us and working through us? And We want them then to fall on their face in worship and declare, God is really here. He is really among you. This, this is real. How does that happen? According to Paul, it happens through the proper exercise of the gift of prophecy. And I would add by extension to the proper exercise of the rest of the Spirit's gifts. So beloved, 
let's not be afraid of the term charismatic. If we are not a charismatic church, that is, if we are not a congregation of spirit-indwelt, spirit-gifted believers who minister to one another and to the world out of these gifts by the power of the Spirit, then we're not a true church. Because every true believer is a charismatic, and every true church is a charismatic church. So with that background in place, let's turn our attention this week and next to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And we're going to see Paul's very brief description of a truly charismatic church. And I want you to remember that this passage follows immediately upon the heels of what we studied last week in verses 1 and 2. So the question is, what does a church look like that is filled with transformed people? in whom the mercies of God are producing the works of God by means of the spirit of God through the word of God to give us the mind of God so that we may live a life of worship to the glory of God. What does that kind of church look like? What does a truly charismatic church look like? A church that pursues and possesses and practices the charismatic gifts. Well, as we will see over the next two weeks, It's marked by three characteristics. First, such a church is marked by a charismatic humility. Second, it is marked by a charismatic diversity. And third, it is marked by a charismatic intentionality. We'll look at the first of those characteristics this week and then pick up the next two next week. So a true charismatic church is first marked by a charismatic humility. We'll look today at verses 3 to 5. For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. In a truly charismatic church, each member regards himself with sober judgment. In other words, every member neither thinks of himself or herself either too highly or too lowly. But how? How do we, how do we get our members to think of themselves rightly with sober judgment, with that charismatic humility? How can we foster that kind of humility among us in which members neither regard themselves as insignificant to the ministry of the church, thinking they don't matter, nor as sufficient for the ministry of the church, thinking that they don't need one another? Or stated another way, how do we help every member see that he or she is indispensable to the ministry of the church, yet also insufficient for the ministry of the church? That we need every gift of every member operating for the good of the church and for the advance of the gospel and for the glory of God. Well, in verses 3 to 5, Paul gives us three truths to remember, three truths which foster this kind of charismatic humility. First, I want you to notice that charismatic humility is an apostolic command. 
This is the meaning of Paul's introductory phrase in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. The exact same phrase is going to be used down in verse 6 with reference to the diverse gifts which the Spirit has given to the church. In other words, in this section dealing with the charismatic gifts of the Spirit that are given to the body, Paul emphasizes that he is himself speaking out of the gifts which the Spirit have given to him, namely the gifts and the office of apostle. And Paul's apostolic command issued out of Paul's apostolic gifting and apostolic office is that every member, he says, each one of you would regard themselves with humility, neither thinking of themselves too highly, nor, we might add, thinking of themselves too lowly. If, therefore, any one of us begins to think that maybe, maybe our gift is more important, more indispensable, more integral to the ministry, more worthy of praise and esteem than another's, then not only am I doing violence to the unity of the church, but I am rebelling against an apostolic command, which is to rebel against Christ himself. Jesus is serious about humility within his church. Second, charismatic humility is an act of faith. Each one of us, Paul says, is to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith which God has assigned. Now, this phrase can be taken in a number of different ways. It could mean that God measures out different amounts of faith to different people. Uh, this view would understand the word measure uh, to refer to a measured quality, like measurement. Uh, the thought then would be that each member ought to exercise the degree of humility proportionate to his degree of faith. In other words, we would expect mature believers to demonstrate more humility than new believers because they have more faith. That could be what Paul means. Or measure of faith could be roughly synonymous with gifts of grace, which is used later down in this passage. In other words, God has assigned to each a gift of grace, okay, a charisma or charismata, and that gift is to be exercised by faith. And so this would be to recognize that, that God's diversity of gifts, this God-ordained diversity of gifts within the church ought to produce a God-ordained humility within the church. In other words, God doesn't give gifts to everyone. The thought then would be that while I may have one gift, that's my measure of faith that you need, you have a gift, your measure of faith that I need, and we need one another, and neither of us is sufficient in and of ourselves. Or measure of faith could mean that faith itself is the measure or the metric. That's the Greek word used here by which we judge ourselves. Well, what does our faith teach us? What does our metric teach us? It teaches us that every good thing we have flows not from ourselves, but from the grace of God. First Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Therefore, there is no room for boasting within the church. 
Paul says in another place, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why then do you boast as though you had not received it? I think the third view is probably the correct one, although the thought behind the first two are true as well. I think that what Paul is saying when he says, think of yourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of faith which God has assigned to each one of you. I think what he's saying is, if we measure ourselves by the metric of faith, we will find that we have nothing in ourselves in which to boast. We were hopelessly depraved before the grace of God found us and transformed us. Even the contributions which we do make to the mission and ministry of the kingdom of God is a gift of God's grace by the Spirit. So as we seek to be a charismatic body, a Spirit-filled church, let us always remember that everything we have is of grace. What do we have that we did not receive? And if we did receive it, why would we boast as though we did not? If we have received these gifts by the free and unmerited grace of God, what gifts? The ability to teach, to sing, to give, to serve, to lead, to pray, to prophesy, to exhort, to heal, to speak in tongues. Whatever gift it is that the Spirit sovereignly wills to give to His church, there is no room for boasting, whether before God or before man. Third, charismatic humility is the result of a charismatic diversity. This is Paul's point in verses 4 and 5. The human body was one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church, and it served him well on a number of points. Like the human body, the church has a head that directs the body, and that head is Christ. Like the human body, the church is, is organic, it's alive, it's active, it's not dead and inanimate. Like the human body, the church is comprised of many members that are formed into this interrelated whole. And it's this third notion that the body is a complex system comprised of many interrelated, codependent members all affecting one another that Paul has in mind in these verses. His point is that humility, that's verse 3, depends upon, you'll notice the four at the beginning of verse 4, have humility for there are many members in this body. Humility depends upon our recognizing that each one of us is but one member in a complex codependent system called the body or the church. I have a function. You have a function. And those functions are not identical, but they are interrelated and co-essential. I need you and your gifts. And you need me and mine. Now again, we can look to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 for help in understanding how this promotes unity and humility in the church. 1 Corinthians 12:14. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The very diversity of the gifts, like the diversity of the members of the body, is evidence that we need one another. That every one of us is both indispensable, that is, the church cannot properly function without you, and yet insufficient. That is, the church cannot properly function with only you. There are no gallbladders or appendices in the body of Christ. We cannot just cut one of us off and still go on functioning at 100%. A truly charismatic church possesses a truly charismatic humility in which every member recognizes both the indispensability and the insufficiency of their own gifts. Next week, we will examine the second and the third marks of a truly charismatic church. We will look, secondly, at the church's charismatic diversity, and we'll unpack those seven charismatic gifts that Paul lists in verses 6 through 8. And then we'll look at the church's charismatic intentionality. We'll examine how the church should intentionally employ these gifts for the good of the church and of the world. But I want to close this week by emphasizing once again that Romans 12, 3 to 8, is describing a charismatic church. Not a church body engaged in charismatic chaos, like an epileptic body spasming and twisting and gyrating out of control with no direction and no regulation and no purpose. That's not what Paul has in mind. Rather, this passage is describing a church body that is held together by the sinews of the word under the headship of Christ, yet is vital and active. Every nerve quickened by the spirit, the members moving in tandem wherever the head dictates, performing their different functions in accordance with the different charismata that each have been given. The world needs that kind of church. The world needs the truly charismatic church comprised of transformed charismatics, filled with the spirit, overflowing with grace, fulfilling their God-ordained function in the power of their spirit-given gifts. Especially during this time of global crisis, the world needs the charismatic church. The world needs the charismatic First Baptist Church of Nixa. Already over the past week, our elders have had discussions with various members of the church who are ready and willing to be deployed with their diverse gifts to respond to this crisis for the good of the church, the good of the community, and the good of the world. And next week, we'll talk about one possible way in which that could happen. In the meantime, though, I want you to ask yourself, how has the Spirit gifted me for such a time as this? How can I serve Christ 
through his body to minister his grace to the church, to the community, and to the world. Because if you are in Christ by faith, you are a charismatic. You have been given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The spirit has apportioned his gifts to each of you individually as he wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. God has arranged each one of you in the body as he chooses. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. So what is your gift And how are you going to deploy it in the power of the spirit through faith in accordance with the word of God for the good of the church, for the good of our community and for the good of the world. And let us this week pray as a church along with the Jerusalem church in Acts 4 that God would make us bold to speak his word even in the face of the threats that we currently face. As the Lord stretches forth his hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of his holy servant, Jesus. The world needs the charismatic church. It needs to witness and experience the power of the Holy Spirit ministering through the church. It needs to come face to face with a bold, fearless, faithful, joyful, transformed, holy, spirit-filled people. So that it will fall on its face in the worship of Christ and declare, truly, God is among you.